I grew such a, a deep a deep love for my grandmother, and then to suddenly see her, you know, with her health failing, and to spend so many hours with her, attending to her, um, watching her her slip away, you know, each day is is it's a powerful experience. The culture and long time care facility kind of can make you feel, kill your dreams, actually, because it just, it will make you hate your job. Nasty, nasty, nasty. You find yourself doing, you know when you do work and it just becomes like a daily activity? You do it without thinking, like you're blank almost. That's how long-time care is, because the work is, it's heavy work, very heavy work. And because of that and the lack of support, nurses, they don't even have time to talk to the patient. You're just there to put medicine in their mouth, put medicine in their mouth. Care is very complex. There's the cyclical aspect of care. All of us have been cared for, at least when we were young, and most of us will care for a child, a partner, a friend, maybe a neighbor. Many of us, particularly if we're female, will perform care for wages. And then, as we age, we will lightly move into the category of needing care, the elder care zone. Elder care can be a site of deep love and caring, a kind of reckoning, payback time, my brother Kevin called it. But it can also be about burden, exploitation, even abuse. American anthropologist and physician Arthur Kleinman talks about co-presence, the empathetic space between an engaged caregiver and the patient or care recipient. And he says that co-presence is as much a spatial thing as it is to do with our internal emotions. It's something that is drawn from within, but exists in real time. And though it's an ordinary thing, Kleinman says it can be exhilarating. Welcome to episode four of COVID in the House of Old. Elder care is relational. I'm your host, Megan Davies. So I like Kleinman a lot, but let's hear from Rachel Barkin, who I also like. Rachel is a Canadian sociologist who has zeroed in on care for most of her academic career. These days, Rachel is getting some experiential knowledge with a six-month-old baby and how fun and appropriate that Claire came along as a bonus podcast guest and, of course, an in-person illustration of the gendered nature of care. You can listen for Claire as we move through the podcast. I began by asking Rachel to explain the concept of relational care. Relational care really is care that is premised on relationships between individuals. If we look at home care, for example, as, you know, somebody's coming in to to give a bath, prepare a meal, and so on, to be able to do those tasks well really depends on having a sense of rapport, about knowing a person, a sense of trust, of collegiality. And without those things, it's much harder for care work to happen. I lost my train of thought there, which sometimes happens when you're bouncing a baby while speaking. But the relationships are unidirectional. So it's not just about the care provider doing care with or for the sort of quote-unquote recipient, 
But often those connections and those relationships extend in different directions. So a lot of home support workers you might talk to, and, and we certainly saw this in our research, would talk about how much they had learned from the people they were caring for. We talked about you know, intergenerational connections with younger care workers and, and older people who had so many life lessons to share and so much wisdom that they passed on to those who were caring for them. So I think those, the relational care, that piece around reciprocity is really important as well. When I heard Toronto musician Hiroki Tanaka talk about being primary caregiver for his elderly grandmother as her Alzheimer's progressed, I could see elements of both the gifting that Rachel talks about and Kleinman's notion of co-presence. But as time went on, um, it was, it just, she became more demanding. And at the same time, you know, I was just spending so much time connecting with my grandmother in a way that I hadn't before um, and and experiencing her sense of self fall away. And that was really powerful and, and painful for me and really put, I think, into stark contrast the sort of the duality of my life. And on one hand, I was a musician um, playing shows in Toronto going to parties and stuff like that. And on the other hand, I was spending um, my my mornings to afternoons uh, with Gran, feeding her, trying to keep house, all that stuff. And so that was, um, yeah, I think a really pivotal departure from from who I was prior to, to being a caregiver uh, and I guess uh, becoming the strange amalgam of, of human that I am now. So that connection, that relationship, the relational connection, I think it's it's almost a hallmark of good care or best practices in the field, right? And it surely must enhance both client and worker satisfaction. Rachel, what are the conditions that make it work? Time is a huge one. Like just time so that workers aren't so rushed in providing care that, you know, they kind of have to do the bare minimum and move on to the next home or the next room in a long-term care home, having, you know, an extra few minutes to really spend and talk to somebody to figure out what they needs are, to, you know, connect with them, both verbally perhaps or physically through how you're touching them in a way that really signifies that you're caring about them as an individual. Yes, because then you're acknowledging that they're a person. Exactly, yeah. So obviously, the next topic was how relational care works in long-term care. Rachel, wouldn't it be more challenging to practice relational care in an institutional setting than in someone's house? I don't think it has to be more challenging, but I think extra attention, care perhaps, needs to be put into making sure that the circumstances are right for relational care to happen. Um, I think it's easier in a large, perhaps, institutional setting for that piece to fall to the wayside and, you know, it really needs to be intentional in order to um, make conditions in which relational care can flourish within a more institutional uh, setting where there are many individuals needing care. And we can look at how elements that might happen in home care can be infused into the long-term care system and, and vice versa to make the system work as well as possible for people who have different needs and are in different circumstances. It's time to introduce you properly to Judith, 
a personal support worker, and former student of mine. Judith was born in Uganda and came to Canada when she was 13 with her mom. It was a dream for a better life for us, she told me. Raised by a single mom, Judith's goal is to do health research or work within healthcare in a policy capacity. As her former undergraduate teacher, I just want Judith to run the entire healthcare system. But when it comes to relational care, I can see that this rarely happened when Judith worked in long-term care. Judith, can you describe the work of care that you experienced on the job site in long-term care? You find yourself, in the beginning, you find yourself doing everything. Like, oh no, don't do that, don't do that, don't touch the patient like that, don't touch the client like that. But now it becomes a system of we got to go. We have things to do. Like we got to go this patient and that patient. I was making money, so I was working a lot. But there's no teamwork. There's no space that enables teamwork. And teamwork can be just two people. Uh, We're talking you're on a unit of 200 plus. You're given different segments. And your segment can have 30 people. And it's only two people that are to do that for 30 middle to total care, which is a lot of work. It's a lot of lifting. This sounds like real burden of care material. When, as Rachel says, relational care is impossible because there just isn't time. Arthur Kleinman would probably tell you that you were experiencing the absence of co-presence, which is when caregiving is highly bureaucratized. Kleinman referenced the use of antipsychotic medication to deal with residents with dementia as an outcome of the absence of co-presence. I remember my whole body changing because, oh, my shoulders started hurting. I never used to have those type of um, aches and pains and stuff. And a lot of stuff in nursing home have disabilities. A lot of them have something's wrong with their wrist, something's wrong with their arm, something's wrong with their knees. That's why it makes the work harder, because then when they're not physically capable, it's a physical job, then that means the rest of you have to do even more work, which also increases your injuries as well. And you were young. Yeah, I was young. Judith had moved on from long-term care by the time the pandemic hit. But I spoke with York researchers Jessica Tykar and Ethel Tugahan, who teamed up with the Migrant Resource Centre and Gabriella Ontario, to research Filipino women workers in long-term care in COVID. As our audience is likely aware, Filipino women, alongside women from the Caribbean, are the largest categories of workers in long-term care in many parts of Canada. Ethel, what did you learn from the workers about the burden of care during the pandemic? Well, I guess if you, well, let's let's put ourselves in the daily work lives of personal support workers and LPNs who work in long-term care, right? A lot of their responsibilities involve helping residents with acts of daily living. That might involve, if they're lucky, machines to support carrying residents, right? Transferring residents from the bed, if they're lucky. Some residents don't have these machines or they're community PSW, so they're just working in a private household. So what that would mean is you would have to lift patients, you would have to lift residents. So 
I don't know about you, Megan, but I'm almost 40 and I already have a bad back, right? I'm very old. <laughs> yeah, imagine lifting stresses that you accumulate when you're bending, lifting, pulling, tugging. And so it's like repeated stress injuries. You know, I think that was exacerbated during COVID because a lot of workplaces were understaffed as well. So some of the women we spoke to said usually she would have a partner, right? Like usually in a shift, she would have a partner who would help her with tasks. But what do you do when people don't show up to work, right? I think one has to imagine long-term care workers standing, holding onto a tray, and burdens of care being loaded on the tray. Time pressures, chronic injury and pain, staff shortages during COVID. And here come a couple more. I knew Judith would have something to say about being a Black female PSW in long-term care but I didn't expect that she would reveal her plans to do elder care for me. This categorization, I mean, I never knew I was Black till I came to this country. I always knew my name. I knew where I came from. But in a society like this, you got to ask, why is race so beneficial? It is beneficial to somebody. It's beneficial to society. And when you subjugate a particular race to like a lower standard in society, not only do they internalize it, but like the opportunities tend to go in the same direction. So I would say in long-term care facility, the one I worked in, majority of the administration was white, obviously the directors and so on and so forth, <laughs> definitely white or appearing to be white because white is also not uh, homogenous. How race worked in in long-term care facility, I would say two ways. Well, maybe more. I would say within the workers, like say the frontline staff, the person support workers and nurses, I found that majority were people of color, but not majority in the facilities at the facility I worked in majority were black, okay? Um, but the other the other racism, definitely from the residents. Oh my God, they're nasty. They're so nasty. Some of them are so nasty, but a lot of residents are very rude. And I can't, sometimes I would say maybe the frustration of being pulled here and there, here and there, but a lot of them are quite racist, very overt. Racist. They'll call you words. So it makes your work difficult because it's like I'm doing care work. And if you show me that you don't care about me. PSW is the most looked down on job. When I was working, I, I used to work with this lady. She was working at that place 20 years and she was still part time, but working full time hours. 20 years, they're not giving people full-time work because they don't want to give them pension. They don't want to give them benefits. And people say, there's a way they say it in my language. They say, you're there wiping people's butts. So it's looked down on as a, as a job. But, I mean, someone has to do it, you know? If you can't, the reality is you reach a point in life and you can't do the things you used to do anymore. Whether you're sick or whether you just or whether you're just aging, a time will come 
you know, and Megan, you'd be like, I'll have to come and visit you. <laughs> I'm going to take care of you. Let me bring you some soup. <laughs> but we all need that. But um, you asked about status. It's looked down upon a lot. So now my imagined long-term care worker is carrying the burdens of not enough time, pain, understaffing, and racism. In episode one, we heard Michelle LeBlanc talk about how tough it was to facilitate family resident communication. Ethel mentioned this when she was describing how COVID reshaped the working lives of Filipino long-term care workers in hard-hit Toronto facilities. Absolutely. I mean, I think we can't understate the importance of personal support workers. They are acting as conduits for family members. Uh, At the height of the pandemic, there were strict restrictions on who could enter the workplace. And I don't want to kind of take us back to the darkest days of the pandemic, but in the darkest days, there were there were a lot of seniors in these long-term care homes who were affected by COVID and who were dying because of COVID. Given that scenario, some of the personal support workers we were talking to were texting family members. They were the ones who were reporting back to family members, even as their work responsibilities multiplied. And so by being the conduit to family members, what I meant was care workers were the ones reporting back unofficially in a lot of ways. And honestly, sometimes they were the ones who were saying goodbye to the residents of these care homes because their families weren't allowed in. And so, you know, obviously we're not robots, right? Of course, this takes an emotional toll. This is fatiguing work. And because of the absence of personnel and because of um, the fact that quite simply there's not enough care workers, a lot of them weren't even able to take breaks, especially at the height of the pandemic. One care worker we spoke to was working three weeks straight. And when she asked for a break, she was denied one. And so I think the effective and the emotive needs to be emphasized here as well. So, Rachel, the care profiles between waged and family elder care are looking rather similar. We know that families, especially female family members, do a lot of emotional senior care. We know that informal caregivers experience physical and psychological impacts from caregiving. And yeah, across the board, this work is so underrated. How do you see this? These distinctions between different types of care are very blurry. So family caregiving and paid caregiving are very much intertwined and overlap in many ways. So when there's articles in the news or policymakers and politicians are talking about care, they might talk about it as, you know, this task or this kind of job, but it's not always that clear cut in terms of who is doing what kind of care and in what circumstances. And it's also not always clear-cut what is a care task. That's one thing. If you talk to people who provide care in one form or another, you know, you're seeing people in their their living environments, whether it's a home or a long-term care home or an institution, and they, they are people living in a place who need things potentially done with them and for them. So care providers end up doing many different things, even if it's not sort of on their list of what they're supposed to be doing. Family members, they would see another person living in a long-term care home who maybe needed some help and didn't have someone there to help them. And they would help that person as well. Or, 
you know, maybe they were there to visit their mother and they were playing a game of cards with their mother and there was another resident there who didn't have anyone, they would start engaging that person in the game as well. So, you know, it extends in so many different ways um, beyond what we might think of as care itself. Andre Picard tells us that we will all be caregivers at some point of our lives. It might only be for 10 minutes. It might be for 10 years. Tell me, what's your profile of a family caregiver besides a card shark? Well, I think family caregivers are an incredibly diverse group. We know that women tend to do more of the care work. Men do a lot, increasingly. But the research and statistics show that when when men give care, it's often for um, tasks that are less intimate or personal in nature. So um, perhaps organizing paid care support or doing other household tasks as opposed to, you know, bathing, toileting, those really, those really intimate forms of care. So there are gendered expectations around who does what. Often one profile that comes to mind of a caregiver is a, an adult daughter who might be caring for her, her parents who have some needs, um, perhaps also while working and perhaps caring for her children. We talk about the sandwich generation, sandwiched between child care and elder care. But of course, there's much diversity within those, that group and across different care needs. So spouses might often provide a lot of care or other family members or friends. You know, we can talk about groups like LGBTQ plus older adults who might not have traditional family forms. Hiroki Tanaka illustrates the diversity in caregiving that Rachel is talking about. He ended up caring for his grandmother in her home moving in with her, and taking care of her in the last stage before she moved into a long-term care facility. So Hiroki bucked the gender trend as a young male taking on this work of care, which was really the work of love, too. Hiroki, can you tell me a little bit about how you came to take care of your grandmother? Uh, yeah. Um, I really didn't come in with uh, a lot of knowledge or expectations or any of that. I, I really uh, just felt at the time, to be honest, you know, part of it was was the Toronto rent situation. Being a, a touring musician, uh, trying to pay rent was really stressful. And it was usually like we would tour for a month or two and then I'd immediately have to go back and, and work at a restaurant or do something to, to make up for, for the lack of money. So for me, you know, being able to move into grands meant that I didn't have to worry about rent and I could fill in. And then once she was asleep, I could spend my time, you know, uh, playing music or doing whatever. For family caregiving, you know, it's really, it's not just a job, right? It's really you looking after family. And so it's it's a little more gray and and messy and not quite clear you know, how much of a role I, I necessarily had. It evolved over time and it was, it was very fluid. That was part of, I think, what made it so uh, transformational was that it was really uh, the witness of someone who, who I'd known all my life and, and the, the job duties evolving out of necessity rather than being clearly stipulated within, you know, a policy or a contract or something. Yeah, you know, I was part of a team of siblings that took care of my mom during the last six years of her life when she had Parkinson's and latterly some dementia. 
She really loved the fact that her kids were caring for her. So she had that every week to look forward to, that she would have a family member coming in on the weekend. And we all had our particular tasks or approach that we would use, and she loved that. It was my brother that really, you know, was the worst shit and the hardest kid when we were growing up, just in terms of encounters with the law and little things like that. But he was the one that stuck around to the end. He had this capacity for care that was just within him, and he had a he has a comfort level with bodies and body tasks. Actually, for us as siblings, the fact that we did it together, it binds us in a way. And we weren't able to do that for my dad. But it still binds us together that we did that for our mom. Yeah, I I agree. I think that was a, a another thing that really happened was that I connected with my aunt and uncles in a way that I hadn't before. You know, because we were all in this together, helping Gran, you know, make it through. Uh, my uncle Stephen came over and and helped uh, fix the the leak that was slowly developing underneath the toilet. It's right above the living room, and there was just so much water that was coming through. It was totally bonkers, <laughs> and um, oh, so many things. And Jackie came and looked after Gran and took her to the doctor's office, and my mom would come and do the same. And not every family can do that, and and I. Um, am now admitting on on tape that some of my sisters and I would like strategize around emails. So I'd say, I'm sending out this email and I want you and you to immediately respond and say, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so there is a little bit of family politicking happening. Per- perhaps I wasn't as privy to the, to the si- sibling uh, politics as, uh, as my mom may have been, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, undoubtedly, there would be some sibling politics. So I actually want to bring in another piece into our conversation, since clearly Claire seems to be enjoying all of this. Arthur Kleinman says that co-presence is a moral act. You talk about care as something that should be regarded as of societal importance, not just siloed into these care situations that we've been talking about but that care is this moral act. You know, I think often care is sort of relegated to the margins or it remains somewhat invisible, in large part because of of where it's happening, sort of private spaces of homes or long-term care homes, and also because of who is doing it, often women and racialized or uh, lower-income women. But if we think about it as really something that we all will need to do, and we will all need, we'll all receive care in different points in our lives, then we can sort of think about it more transformatively as something that really connects us all and really should form the basis for how we think about policymaking. Care shouldn't be the last thing we think about, but actually the first thing we think about in terms of making other decisions. And, you know, there's been interesting research that talks about sort of care of the environment and connects these conversations around um ethics of care as in human care to care care for the planet and care for other species as well. And I think that really points to how fundamental care is to, to the way we go about our lives. I agree. And I think Claire does too.
That was episode four of COVID in the House of Old, hosted by me, Megan Davies. It featured the voices of Hiroki Tanaka, Judith, Rachel Barkin, and Ethel Tungahan. It was produced, edited, and mixed by Cohen Hammond. It featured music by Cohen Hammond, Tom Upjohn, and Mara Nisarala. This project would not be possible without the support of a Jack and Doris Shadbolt Fellowship in the Humanities from Simon Fraser University. Stay tuned for more episodes. Show.